Father, would you honor yourself this morning by making the things from your word clear? Would you, Lord, would you give us a vision of yourself big enough to constrain and to demand not only our attention, Lord, but our love, our affection, our desires? Lord, would you liberate us from small things and small thinking? into the glories you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Scripture says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. And uh, we're winding down. We're doing the 10th word this morning from a series on the 10 words or 10 commandments. I'm going to have a wrap-up on this, Lord willing, next week. So this won't be the final word, but it's the final of the 10 words. So uh, this has been... A series I think I've had more feedback than on any I've ever done. And maybe that shouldn't be surprising, but uh, anyway, I think God's used it. So this is the last week for the ten words and wrap up next week. I want to revisit this morning as we get started the Genesis 3 account of the fall. If you remember when we looked at the words on stealing and lying, we came to this same passage. And I want to look at this again this morning, but you remember that we said the first act, sinful act on the earth was stealing, that Adam and Eve had taken something that wasn't theirs to have. God had forbidden them the fruit from the tree of life, and they had taken what wasn't theirs they'd stolen. But then we also said, but you know, that was precipitated by lies and slander, that the serpent, Satan, and the guise of the serpent had come in and had lied about what God had said, and then had slandered God also. This morning, as we consider the same account, though, I want to go back and see if there isn't something between the lies and the slander and the act of theft. So, Genesis 3, 6, just in this one verse, after the serpent has lied and slandered, this is what it says about Eve. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So the lies and the slander, the taking and the eating, and in between is this phrase, she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and then she took. And then she ate. And it appears that Eve broke the tenth of the ten words between the lies and the slander and the act of theft by having an inappropriate desire for something that wasn't hers to have. By coveting the fruit from the tree God had reserved for himself. The word in Genesis 3, 6 that the tree was desirable comes up again in the text we'll be in this morning out of Exodus. So, last of the ten words. This is from Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet what belongs to someone else. So, this command forbids an attitude in our hearts and minds 
whereby we allow and develop a selfish desire for those things or people God has given to someone else and not to us. Let me say that again. This command forbids an attitude in our hearts or minds whereby we allow a selfish or a self-centered desire for things or people that God has given to someone else but He has not given to us. So, in this command, it shifts a little bit because now we're not talking about outward actions, words that leave our mouth, things we outwardly take. Now we're talking about God shifting to our inward motives. This is kind of a quantum change from the prior commandments. Coveting is desire run amok for the things that other people own and we do not. Now, lust is a lot like coveting. You know, if we lust for something, we have an unholy, self-centered desire for something. But the truth is, we can lust for things that we own. We can lust for things that are ours rightfully to use or to have, a spouse or our supper. We can lust for things that belong to us anyway. But coveting takes that kind of self-centered, self-serving desire from something that might otherwise be legitimate for us to use or to have. But it's narrower because now it applies it to those things that other people have that are not mine to have, legitimately or otherwise. The Hebrew word for covet here is from the root kamad or kamad. And it simply means to desire or to take pleasure in. So the term covet just means desire. And it can be used positively or negatively. So positively, we take pleasure in something. It's a good or an appropriate desire. Negatively, it's an inordinate, unhealthy, selfish desire. So this word, this root word, is in Genesis 2.9. So in the creation account where everything there is good, the trees God created in the garden were pleasing to the sight. They were pleasant, they were desirable, just like God meant them to be. So Adam and Eve see those trees and they say, wow, those are desirable, those are pleasing. Just the way God wanted. Totally positive. Psalm 19.10, the words of God's law are more desirable than gold. God's word is desirable. It's the same word. Kamad. It's something that we should desire. In Exodus 20.17, in our word, in our word, tenth word today, that's the same word employed here. Don't covet. But it simply means don't desire. Don't desire the things that aren't yours to have. Genesis 3, 6, the tree was desirable to make one wise. It's the same thing. It's the same word. It's desire set in the wrong place on the wrong things. It's, it's about desire. If you've got a study sheet, we'll roll through a few of the Old Testament examples of this. Same word. Application of the principles of this tenth word. Deuteronomy 7.25, Israel was not to desire, they were not to set their hearts on or covet the silver and the gold that would be found on the idols of the nations they dispossessed as they went into the land of promise and took it. As they dispossessed those nations... They would find statues covered with silver and gold. And God said to them, that silver and gold is not for you. Don't desire it. Don't set your heart on it. That's, that's for destructive purposes. 
Leave it alone. Joshua 7, uh, 21, you know, Joshua 7 is a cautionary tale. Remember very briefly, we use this as an illustration already. But when Israel goes into the land, the first city, Jericho, just like the tree of life in the garden, God said, that's mine, that's not yours. Everything in the city is for me. None of it's for you. And yet after the city walls fell and they took the city, they went to the next city, to the city of Ai, and they were defeated. And Joshua wonders, Lord, what is going on? And God says, Israel has sinned because you have stolen that which, which, which I prohibited. And they take lots, they draw lots down to Achan. And Achan says, when Joshua says, give glory to God, tell the truth, what have you done? Achan says, I coveted the gold I saw in Jericho. I desired the thing you said I was not to desire. It's not for me. Achan says, I desired it. And so I took it and I hid it in my tent. And of course, that story goes on. Achan's life is destroyed. His family's lives are destroyed because he coveted something God had forbidden. The coveting, by the way, you'll see this, it's formulaic, basically. The coveting always leads to destruction and death. That's what happens. So that was certainly the truth with Achan. In 1 Kings 21, this is very similar. It's a poignant story about this prohibition to desire what's not ours to have. The first Kings 21 is King Ahab. You know he's a wicked king. And he's got a wicked wife, Jezebel. But in the midst of this wickedness, one of the things he does, he covets his neighbor Naboth's vineyard. It's near his palace. It's near his place. And he looks out and says, man, that'd be a great place for me to have. I could use that space. And so he approaches Naboth, hey, I want your land, sell it to me, I'll pay you whatever you want. Naboth is an honorable man, he says, no, this is my family's inheritance, I can't sell this. Basically, you can't have it. But you see, the king covets that land, he wants it, he set an evil desire on that which belongs to someone else. His wife asks, what's wrong? He tells her, this sets the story in motion in which She sets it up so that Naboth is accused, he's stoned to death, and the king goes and takes his land. But if you remember the rest of the story, God speaks to King Ahab because of coveting his neighbor's land, and God curses him and curses his household and says, this will be the end of you and all your line. It comes out of this story about coveting, desiring what was not his to have or to possess. And last in this Old Testament example of the use of this word in the negative sense, Proverbs 6.25, Solomon, wise father, talking to his son, says, don't desire the beauty of the evil woman. This could go flipwise today for us, for young gals. Don't desire the, the handsome guy out there whose heart is not after God. But that beauty might be good in and of itself, but it's not for you. That's not the kind of person God wants for you. So that beauty is off limits to you. It's not for you. Don't desire it. Don't set your heart on it. When you go to the New Testament, you see very, very similar warnings, very similar use. You know, in the original documents, you go from Hebrew text to Greek text. So the Greek 
word used to translate the Hebrew command is epithumio. And it simply means, just like command, a strong desire. It's important to realize in both of these, these contexts, Older New Testaments, it's desire misplaced. It's not desire that's the issue. It's desire misplaced. That's what we're talking about. So, just like in the Old Testament, epithumio can be used positively or negatively. It's really the object of that desire that becomes the issue. The appropriateness of that desire that's the issue. So positively, Matthew 13, 17, Jesus speaks to His disciples and He says, many righteous men and prophets desired to see what you see. They wanted to see God's kingdom in place through His Messiah and you're seeing it. They had a holy desire for a right thing. It was entirely appropriate. They desired to see God at work as you're seeing it today. Negatively, Matthew 5, 28 Everyone who looks on a woman with lust, it's the same word, with desire. See, we we interpret it when it's an evil desire. We say it's lust, but it's the same root. It's the same word. So it can be used positively or negatively, just like the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's bringing up the stories of Israel to the Corinthian believers, and it's in this warning passage about, hey, You know, when God led Israel through the wilderness, they did all these things that basically are object lessons for us. And in that context, he says, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. And this goes back to the Exodus story. They're getting manna every day. God's feeding them in the desert, in the wilderness. But they don't want the thing God's providing. They want the things God isn't providing. They want the food from back in Egypt. They're craving the fish and the meat and the vegetables. They're craving. They've set an evil desire, not because the food from Egypt is evil, but because it's not what God was providing them in that time and in that place. So don't crave what God isn't providing like the children of Israel did in the Exodus. Be careful, he says. In 1 Corinthians 9 or 6, verses 9 and 10, and echoed in Ephesians 5, coveting is in this list of characteristics that are true of those who don't see or don't enter the kingdom of God. You know, the immorality, the grosser sins we think of in this list are tied to coveting. The wrong desire or the desire for the wrong thing, it's in the same list. Paul says these people do not enter the kingdom of God. And last, in James 4, verse 2, James' heart is tacked. He's like an Old Testament prophet. He says, you lust, same word, you desire, and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So you see here, This desire, this lust is driven by envy. And then it ends in murder and disputes, fighting and quarreling. You see that same thing that the coveting, the wrong desire, or the desire for the wrong thing, it ends in destruction. Same thing, almost formulaic. 
As we've gone through each of these words, um, many of them we've sort of compared them. How are, how are we doing on this today as a culture? How are we doing on this today as a church? How are we as individuals doing on this today? You know, whether it's stealing or idolatry or attitude towards parents, how we use our time, etc. How are we doing on those? Well, ask ourselves the same questions in this arena of desire and coveting and greed, sort of everything that's around this thing, that we, what we set our hearts on. How are we doing as a culture or as a church today, you know, it'd be hard to say we are not living in a time characterized by greed, lust, envy, and coveting. So if we paraphrase this command today, we might say something like, don't entertain an evil desire for what others have, for their spouses, for their successes, for their money or their wealth for their children or their kind of success, for their vacations or their vocations. What has God given to someone else that He hasn't given to me? Don't set my heart on that. But if we think about the culture we live in today, how are we doing at setting our hearts only on those things God wants and refusing to set our desires on those things God doesn't want? This is my short list. You'd have your own. I'm sure you'd add to this without any trouble. Uh, pornography today, which is not only rampant in the culture, it's rampant in the church. No matter, most of this is anecdotal, but when you go to conferences, when you do the few st- statistics that are available, pornography is about equally troublesome in the church as it is out of the church. Pornography is coveting a person who doesn't belong to me or people that don't belong to me. Coveting someone else's spouse or wife or sister or mother Pornography at its very root is coveting. It's coveting. Advertising in general in our age is designed to make us dissatisfied with what we have and life is not complete until I have all the toys and all the good things that my neighbor has. You know, in the land of the free, we're all equal. I'm as good as you, you're as good as me. If you've got wealth and if your wealth looks like this and your success looks like these things, these trinkets, these vacations, then that's what I should have too. I'm as good as you. The advertising age has brought coveting to a fine art. It's designed to make us covet what other people have. Advertising in general. In liberal political circles, and by the way, this is true not only in the United States, it's certainly true in Europe as well, the wealth of the wealthy is coveted. The wealth that other people have put together through business most often legitimate, is coveted by politicians because they're buying people's vote. They're buying their own power with other people's money through tax policy. The wealth of the wealthy is coveted in liberal political circles. Those in the financial services, we talked about this under theft, have coveted regularly. Just think about the stories in the news. Headlines in the last couple decades, those in financial services have coveted the wealth of their investors and have ended up stealing it. But that stealing started with the evil desire, the desire for what legitimately belonged to someone else, in this case their investors. If you think of geopolitics today, the East, and I mean the Far East, covets the technologies of the West. The East is looking for ways every day this is in the news recently, to steal our technologies and our businesses and our government information. 
There was an article in the paper just a couple weeks ago about a guy retiring from the FBI. And it was in this technology information area. And he would often go to companies and say, do you know that your security was breached eight years ago? And that these uh, groups in the Far East have been privy to everything you've done for the last eight years. This is, this is normal. But on the flip side, the West covets the goods and services the East can provide. And, and when I say this, I'm not talking about legitimate free trade. I, I'm, capitalism is a good thing. Free trade is a good thing. These are systems that free people to produce wealth and work themselves up to a better lifestyle. But it becomes usury because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. So geopolitically, there's coveting as well. We truly live in a covetous age, an age where our desires are set on the wrong things. Now, It's neat and perhaps predictable that when you get to the tenth of the ten words, you essentially come full circle right back to the first and second of the ten words. Do you know that when we covet, when we break the tenth word, we inevitably break the first and second also. When I set my heart on something God has not given me, I'm creating little gods, either as myself or the things I covet. I'm displacing the God who says, I'm the only God that is. have no other gods before me. And I'm setting up little statues, little variations on the theme through the objects I covet. When I break the tenth command by necessity, I break the first and second also. There's no way around it. The commands, the words are inextricably linked. We never break just one. We break more than one always. So we come full circle with this one. When I allow or when I set my heart to desire the things God has not given me, I'm telling God you're not God in my life or you're not God in this area of life, which means you're no God at all. I'm God. And these are my little demigods. And I'm setting my heart on these things that will perish in the use, but God, I'm replacing you with both myself and those little imitations of life I've chosen to set my affections and my heart and my desires on. Your second fiddle, Lord, your second rate, I've got a better plan. I'll take over, thank you very much. Now, Paul addresses this very specifically in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says there, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desire. It's the same thing, epithumian. It's the same word. And greed, he says here, which amounts to idolatry. When I entertain evil desire, desire set on the wrong objects, Paul says de facto it's idolatry. I've set up other demigods. Coveting, lust, greed, envy, they all diminish us. And we were formed for this relationship with this infinite, merciful, loving, generous God. And when we set our heart on something less, we just shrivel up into these little creatures who, by the way, are never satisfied with those God replacements anyway. There are antidotes to coveting. 
God has a better way, and we'll look at a few of those here in just a second, but I want to point out before we do that <clears throat> the tenth word, like the others, the tenth word, the knowledge that God says, don't do this, the knowledge of that cannot keep me from coveting. God says, Mike, don't covet. Don't set your heart, your desires on things I haven't given to you. The knowledge of that prohibition cannot restrain my desires. And Paul's very clear on this in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. We're made to desire, guys, which is why I say desire inherently is not the issue. It's not desire per se. Paul says in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, he's been talking about the Christian, our relationship to the law and to sin, And he says, wow, if the law brings more sin, is the law bad? He concludes, no, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting, desires for the wrong things, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting, Of every kind. Do you see, we covet by nature because our desires now as sinful, deficient creatures, our desires are sinful and deficient. So we simply covet with every breath we have. We covet by our very natures. But not only that, the law points out that thing you're doing, that's coveting, that's wrong. God says don't do that. That's helpful. I know that. But now Paul also says it does another thing. It takes it a step further. Do you know that as sinners we are rebels and we say to God, I think of Psalm 2, you know, God, you stay in heaven, we'll create our own throne, we'll do it our own way, we'll be God, don't you worry about a thing. You know, we are rebels at heart, so when God makes it clear, guys, don't covet, do you know what a rebel's heart says? Well, I'm going to covet more. I'm going to covet more because I'm going to shake my fist in your face and show you I'm God. You're not. I'm a rebel by nature. So guys, if we're going to find deliverance from coveting, it won't be from the law. It won't be from the command. Because Paul says, no, the command points out my coveting. And you know what? It takes it one step further. It provokes my coveting in my sinfulness, in my sinful response to God. So if we're going to find deliverance from coveting, it's not going to be through the command, not to covet. It only points it out and it only provokes it. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, his substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross for your sins, you know at least two things. You know God is good and God loves you. And these are really simple and basic, but the truth is if I know God's good and God loves me, I can start cutting at the root of greed and evil desire. If God is good and He loves me, then as surely as night follows day, I know with certainty that His plans and His provision for me in this life are good. That what God gives me and with what God withholds from me all fall under God's good purposes for my life. And God's good purpose is to conform me and you gloriously into the image of His Son. God's purpose in our life is to free us from what we were, 
to recreate us as sons and daughters of the Most High God, reflecting the character of our big brother and our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus. So if I know God loves me, and I know He's good, then I can start to cut at the root of greed because I can objectively say to myself, if God has given me something in my life, He means it as a blessing. God's good, He does good, and He loves me. Guys, I also know this. If God withholds something from me that I really, really want, I know it's for my good because I know God loves me and God's good. So if I set my affections or desire on something, and this doesn't have to be an evil thing, if I want to marry a certain person, guys, if I want a certain kind of church building, if I want one thing or another, good things, the thing doesn't have to be a deficient object of affection or desire. But if I realize God has not provided that for me, I have to conclude, if God's good, and He is, and He loves me, and He does, that this is for my good. And that in God's glorious provision for my transformation into Christ's likeness, what He's withholding is for my good out of His love. If we can get our hearts wrapped around this, we've got the beginnings of putting coveting and greed and envy away as controlling influences in our life. If we don't get this at the very root of this, we're going to struggle with this all our life because we don't have an objective truth that can confront the sinful desire that's going to come up otherwise. So if we know these things, we can begin doing something about, on a practical level, coveting and greed in our own life. Now to the three things, the three ways, three things we can do proactively on our part to get away from this sin. A contentment is the first there you'll see on your study sheet. Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, the wisest man, the wisest man that ever lived on the earth, besides Jesus, the Son of God walking here, the wisest man who had all the wealth, who could do anything he wanted, get as much as he wanted of it, he said, the eye is never satisfied with seeing, the ear is never satisfied with hearing. Guys, if the wisest man who's ever walked the earth, who had everything he could use to get as much of anything he wanted, says, you know what, it's never enough, then you know what, it'll never be enough for us either. Whatever our resources are, whatever dreams come true, to set our hearts on a little bit more and a little bit more, it will never be satisfied. Lust and greed can never be satisfied. Rockefeller in the 1930s when the world had just fallen out, you know, economically, this guy's wealthy. He's sitting on tons and tons of wealth. And someone asks him, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? He's one of the richest men in the world. You know, his famous reply is one dollar more. It's never enough. It's never enough. If God's not my object, it's never enough. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Screwtape Letters about lust and greed or coveting. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-diminishing, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You know that our greed and our covetousness just always promises more than the fulfillment. That's why we're never happy. If you get everything 
we have evil desire towards, we'll still never be content, never be happy. Now contrast that with Paul in Colossians 4, verse 11 through 13. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now remember, Colossians is a prison epistle. This is written from prison. By a guy who back in his heyday was well-to-do, respected. You know, he was among the elite in Israel. He knew what some at least local expression of fame was and success and affirmation. So he's sort of been at the highlights of life and here he's in a prison, he's at the low end of life and he says, I can be content wherever I'm at. Whatever the circumstances, I can be content through Him, through Christ who strengthens me for whatever I'm going through. I can be content. Guys, contentment is never based on our circumstances. If we think that we'll be content when we just get that next thing, you'll never be content. We'll never get there. If we're not content now, where we are, with what God's provided for us now, we will never be content. It's impossible. 1 Timothy 6 Paul winds down his letter to Timothy and he's talking about the stuff this world has to offer, riches and wealth and good stuff. And he says there in verse 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Basically, if we have the necessities for life, we're good to go, Paul says. You know what, everyone here, we have food, we have clothes on our back, and we have a roof to sleep under. By Paul's definition, we have everything we need to be content. And he had less than that and was content. But Paul says, if we've got the basics, we're good to go. We can be content. Verse 17 later, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present age. And we could add, instruct those who want to get rich in this present age. Not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And guys, economically, you know, this world is in trouble. Europe is teetering on the brink. Our economy, our debt is at GDP. We have no way to repay our debt. And Europe has no way to repay their debt. You know, and if the bottom just falls out, it wouldn't be a surprise anytime soon. If we fix our hope or our desires on the uncertainty of riches, we are in trouble. We'll never be content. We won't feel safe. Paul says, no, even if you've got the wealth now, don't set your heart on it. But instead, set your hope on God. By the way, that goes on. God is not opposed to us having good things. God who richly supplies us all good things to enjoy. But we're not setting our affection or our heart or our hope on the things. We're setting them on God. Last along this line, Hebrews 13, 5 Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Guys, you've got to think about that for just a second. Think about this command to contentment in Hebrews. So Jesus says, be content where you are. And he says, and this is why, because I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. So, when you and I entertain discontentment, what are we really saying? 
just do the math. Be content because you have me. So when we're saying we're not content, what are we saying? God, you're not enough. Christ, you're not enough. You're okay in your own way. And you're good for some things, but not for others. Because you haven't given me this. So Jesus, you know, you're a close second you know, to that nice house, to that new car, to my version of success. That's really what we're saying. Hebrews 13.5 makes it clear. When we as Christians entertain discontent in our current circumstances, we are telling the almighty, omniscient, all-loving God who's given Jesus for us, you're not enough. You're not enough. Jesus is enough. The second antidote to our covetousness and our greed, envy, is love. Sometimes love is like Jesus, it's the right answer, you know. Love. But think of where this takes you related to our desires. When Paul talks about the way we treat others in Romans 13, he brings up the ten words that have to do with the way we treat others. And he takes it one step further. So Romans 13, 9, Paul says, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Paul talks about not coveting in this context, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So think about this. If I love my neighbor or my brother or sister in Christ, or my family member, or the person at work, if I love that other person, I can be happy when God gives them success and prosperity and blesses them with good things that I'd love to have because I love them. Because they're more important than their stuff. If I love my neighbor, I won't be tempted in greed because I love my neighbor. Greed and envy is a great temptation in the church. And it's true today, and it was true in James' day. How do we treat the poor among us? How do we treat the wealthy among us? Do we make a distinction? Do the wealthy look down on the poor? Do the poor despise the wealthy? See, these are all absolutely deficient ways of thinking because love levels out the field. No, I love my wealthy brother or sister in Christ because God loves them and they're my sister or my brother. I want them to be blessed. If I love my neighbor, I don't want their stuff because they are more important than their things. If I love, I cut off at the root the temptation to covet and to greed. It's hard to covet the goods of a person that I love. I don't want to take what they have. God bless them. God bless them more because I love them. The last of these three antidotes to coveting or evil desire is simply better desires. Better desires. You remember, desire itself is not the issue. We will have desires. We do have desires. Desire in and of itself is not the issue. What do we desire? Why do we desire it? 
along with a focus on personal contentment and love towards God and others, we need to have adequate objects for our passions and our desires. Adequate objects for our passions and desires. I am struck. Maybe you've seen this in the last, I don't know, maybe decade. I am struck by how often the term passion is used in Christian circles. Passion. Contrasted with how passionless most Christians are. And how passionless we in Christ's church tend to be. Passion deficient. Well, I have a passion for Christ. I have a passion to worship. This is a passionate church. Is it? I don't think we tend to be passionate. I think we have little desires for little things. I don't think desire is the problem. Desire, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis argues, is not at all the problem. And I love, you know, this was a guy who studied humanity. He knew what we are like, both from himself and observation of others around him, reading and history. And this is a great quote of his, and I think it puts this in perspective. This is from The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are, he continues, half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. His conclusion is we are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. If we want to see an example of passion, holy desire, free from covetousness, go back to Paul for just a second. This is out of Philippians 3. I love this. So Paul's in prison for preaching Christ. And you know, you read through his letters. There's no, no plea for pity. There's no feeling sorry for himself. There's no whining to God about how unfair life is. I've done what you wanted and look where it's landed me. And people who aren't near as faithful as I are, they're still out free enjoying supper and lunch and anything else they want. None of that. He doesn't ask to have the easy life others are enjoying. He instead says he's happy and content right where he's at. Now, how can he do that? He's sitting in a prison. He doesn't have his freedom. He can't see the people he'd like to see. He can't get out and about as he used to do. So why in the world is he content right where he's at? Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. These are great memory verses, by the way. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. And remember, Paul's not always been a poor guy in prison. He's lived at the upper echelons of life in Jerusalem. He was among the Jews. He was the top notch. He was well known. He had a good life and respect and approbation, all the good stuff most of us want. He had it all. So when he says, whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss for Christ, he's saying any of the good stuff you can get out of this life It pales in comparison to a net loss compared with Christ. Could I have the riches of the world on one hand or Christ on the other? Paul says, no, take it all, get it all. It's all loss compared to Christ. 
no matter what this looks like to us, anything, everything the world has to offer, Paul says compared to Christ, it's loss. It's not a positive, it's not an asset, it's not a gain, it's a loss. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This term for rubbish is interesting. This is like the scraps on your plate after supper. You, they're trash. You, you wipe them into the trash. The rubbish heap. The stuff we throw away. Paul had been to heaven he saw Jesus face to face. The Lord talked to him. He has a taste. He has a, a perspective, perhaps, that we don't. But that would be the point. That the more fully we see Christ, the more fully we gain a sense of who He is and what He's like, the more our hearts are drawn out to Him. Like Paul, we can say, everything else is loss. Everything else is trash I would throw away for one more ounce of the knowledge of knowing Jesus as He is. And this is why Lewis has it right. Guys, we're not passionate. Our, our problem isn't that we're passionate. We're not passionate. We don't have strong enough desires for objects worthy of those desires. We need to see more of Christ. I find it really interesting too. Tenth word comes back to the first, and Genesis comes back to Revelation 22. So you remember we've talked about temptation, lying, coveting, theft, and the context of the temptation account in the first book of the Bible. So there's a tree that's prohibited. And humanity takes the fruit of that tree, and death and destruction result. But boy, what happens when you get to Revelation 22? And John describes for us the new Jerusalem. And what do we see? There's a throne of God there in the center. And what comes out from under the throne? Well, there's a river. It's a river of life. And it flows to the middle of the city. And what's planted on both sides of the river of life? The tree of life. And it says it bears fruit every month. It's apparently a different fruit every month. And is it restricted now? No. Is it destructive now to take that fruit and eat it? Nope. Is God holding something good out on us, guys? Nope. God has our hearts now. The tree's there in abundance. And it says no longer is it destructive. It's for the healing of the nations. When Eve took the prohibited fruit, when she desired what God forbid, it brought death and destruction. When we're redeemed and our desires are fully met in Christ Himself, in God Himself, God says, guys, you can have it all. I don't hold anything back. It's all yours. The tree of life, there it is. Go get it. God never withholds anything good from us. If we're setting our heart or desires on things He's withheld, it's our desire is put in the wrong place. The desire itself is not the issue. Only God Himself is ultimately big enough and satisfying enough for our desires. We've got to have done with small desires, with puny desires inadequate desires. And only Jesus Christ can take a person and fill them up so thoroughly and so fully that they want nothing and no one more. Father, would you give us eyes to see your glories as your servant Paul did. Lord, would you 
draw our eyes and our hearts away from inadequate desires for inadequate things. Would you help us to see you as you are? Would you liberate our hearts from the petty sins, Lord, of greed and envy, lust and coveting? And would you liberate us into the glories of the sons of God to know you more fully? Father, I thank you that ultimately all our heart's desires, those purified, refined desires given by your Spirit in our new natures will be fully realized when we see your glorious Son face to face. In his name, amen.